I'm Abby Strauss, and welcome to The Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. Thomas Joyner is a professor of psychology at Florida State University. He has written and worked with the problem of suicide for many years. Dr. Joyner, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be with you. The statistics are startling. In the year 2005, 32,637 people committed suicide in the United States, which is about 625 people a week. It's the fourth largest cause of death in the 18 to 65-year-old group. Dr. Joyner, where do we even begin with these statistics? This is an incredible number of people. Uh, It is a massive public health problem. Uh, As you mentioned, tens of thousands per year in the U.S. and over a million worldwide. So it's an extraordinary health issue and and one that I think deserves rigorous scientific research. And, And what guides, I think, good scientific research is a testable, usable theory. And so that's one place where I myself have started in my work is trying to develop a theory like that. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of the theory? Well, the idea is that there's two distinct areas that uh, are important to, to think about when you're trying to understand serious suicidal behavior. One of them is already well known, and it's, it's the desire to die by suicide, the, the wish to death. And, and, and people already know about that one. I'm going to return to that one in a second, but the other one that that people, I think, maybe don't appreciate as much has to do with the capacity to die by suicide. It's something that I believe is really not at all wired into us, and so it takes a lot of fearlessness, a fearlessness that I believe is developed and and learned over, over experiences throughout life. It takes a kind of fearlessness to have the capacity to do something as daunting and as fearsome as this. Now, when you combine the fearlessness with the desire that I mentioned a moment ago, that's when you get the the recipe, as it were, for dangerous and and, and potentially lethal suicidal behavior. So the capacity is, if I understand it, is the ability to overcome the fear of death or, as some people would say, the life instinct within us? Exactly. I mean, I think the the self-preservation instinct is another way to put it, and I think it's incredibly strong. It's it's sort of the nature of all organisms to have that extremely strong instinct. And so, yes, overcoming that is just it's no it's no small thing. In fact, it's a very difficult thing. And so, this kind of fearlessness, I think, is required to be able to overcome it. Is the fearlessness often an impulsive thing? I've often wondered if there is a clinical difference between those who attempt suicide impulsively versus those who do it in a more carefully planned out manner. I, I think that one one value of of, of my of my model is that it, it sheds light on topics exactly like this. I think the relationship of impulsivity to suicidal behavior has been somewhat misunderstood. I think the reason that there's a link is because the pre-existing impulsivity leads people to engage in behaviors, whether it's substance use behaviors or physically assaultive behaviors, et cetera, et cetera. And it's those kinds of experience, experiences that over time accrue and make people fearless. So that if they also develop that desire for suicide, they have the wherewithal, they have that capacity to to enact that desire. Is the development a product of a mental illness? Absolutely, and I think that's another 
another potential value of the theory. You know, my my colleagues and I. This is a little while ago. We we tallied up the number of of risk factors that have been documented for suicidal behavior, and depending on how you count, you can get over a hundred. And and of course, the mental disorders are are are, are a big part of that. What I've tried to do in the theory is to say that of all these hundreds of risk factors, there are mental disorders, genetic factors, personality factors, early childhood adversity, and on and on and on. Of all those, what are the the, the, the main commonalities? And, and what I've come, come down on is that the main common da- commonalities of all those is this fearlessness and this desire piece, and I didn't, get, I didn't say earlier what that desire piece is, is made up of, and I think it's made up of two psychological states of mind. And one is the idea that you're alienated, uh, disconnected, lonely, socially isolated. The other is the idea that you're a burden on your loved ones, on your family, on, on your society. And it's this latter, latter factor, this perceived burdensomeness, where people have the idea that their death will be worth more to others than their lives. I think this is a, another factor in suicidal behavior that's been a little bit underappreciated in past work. So if I understand you correctly, then the notion of the worthlessness and the notion of the isolation, if I'm being too simplistic, please elaborate, but those seem to be very important. Can I go so far as saying predictive signs of potential suicide efforts or attempts? Actually, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it's the, what I would say is that the combination of a kind of worthlessness, more specifically this idea about perceived burdensomeness, the combination of that with social isolation does predict the desire for suicidal behavior. But there are only a few people who can act on that desire, and it's it's those few people that have developed that fearlessness that we were referring to a moment ago. And do these people – here's where I get confused sometimes, and I'm delighted to ask you this stuff. (laughs) I read statistics that about 50% of the people who are suicide attempters have mental disorders, but the other 50%, I'm, I'm rounding the numbers a bit perhaps, don't necessarily have clear mental health issues. So if someone is feeling worthless, if someone is feeling isolated, do they fall in the mental health illness group? Well, yeah, absolutely. I, I think that there are statistics exactly as you, as you quote, but I, I view them with a little bit of a grain of salt because I think that virtually 100% of certainly people who die by suicide, but also of people who make clear suicide attempts, I think virtually 100% of them have either a, a clear mental disorder, or if they don't, then they have a subclinical variant of one of those mental disorders. Otherwise, I just don't think suicidal behavior makes a whole lot of sense. I really do view it as, as a complication and sometimes a, a fatal complication of mental disorders. Is there a cultural connection here? Do people from the country, farmlands, tend to do this differently than people in the cities? Is there a, an element of that in the development of a suicidal um, act? Definitely. There, there, in the U.S., there are clear rural versus urban differences with, with higher rates in rural areas. One possibility for explaining that is, is, has to do with social isolation. You know, obviously in urban centers, social isolation is probably slightly lower than it is in rural areas. 
another issue is in the rural areas, people are, you know, engaging in day-to-day activities that are outdoors, that are physical. And so through those kinds of day-to-day activities, I think this kind of fearlessness can accrue. And so when you take together that fearlessness together with something like social isolation and in rural areas, to my mind, that may explain why there is that rural versus urban difference in the U.S. It it occurs in other countries, too. One of the things that struck me as I was preparing for this was that in May 2008, New York Magazine did a major story on suicide, and you were quoted in the article. And uh, the the researchers quoted that they stumbled on a – let me read this directly. Researchers stumbled on a striking fact about the suicides in New York. A surprising number of people who kill themselves in the city come from out of the city. The author called it suicide tourism. That's an interesting term. What are your thoughts about that? Well, you know, the term is, is, is kind of catchy, and I can see why it would be used to, you know, maybe entice readers to, to read about it. But I, I don't think it really has much to do with tourism. And what I think it has to do with is the idea that, you know, the state of mind of people who are about to die by suicide, I think, is widely misunderstood. Often motives are attributed to suicidal people like selfishness or revenge, for instance. And on occasion, that can be the case. But I think what people are doing who are traveling to a major city like New York, New York City, for instance, part of what they have in their minds is that they don't want to have their loved ones confronted with any more pain than they have to. So they take the suicidal scene elsewhere to where family will be, in a sense, spared, not, of course, of the agony of the loss, but of that acute discovery kind of scene that really adds to the agony of the loss. Moreover, people in New York City, the authorities, police, emergency personnel, are, are in a sense, well-versed in handling this, whereas in more, you know, smaller population centers they aren't. So I think not all, but part of the uh, phenomenon of of suicide, uh, of of tourism, so to speak, are things like that, where people are really, in a sense, being somewhat considerate in, in in their final act. Is there a shift in the age group in which suicides are, or even suicide attempters or attempts are occurring? Is it more in younger children than it was before, more in older folks than it was before? Is there, is there a shift at all? Well, there is a little bit of a shift, but before I get to that, the, 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 by far the, the, the prevailing factor when it comes to age is that serious suicidal behavior, including death by suicide, is far more common in older people than it is in younger people. And I think that's just a crucial point to, to emphasize. It can't be emphasized enough. The, the shift, though, has occurred in somewhat younger people where over the last 30, 35 years, the rates in people, say, under 20, have close to doubled. Now, that's a, a very worrisome trend, trend, and we're not totally clear why that's happened. But, but again, even given that doubling of the rate, that, that, that rate is nowhere close to what the rate is in, in older people. And is that a factor of isolation and the worthlessness as it well? Could be. It certainly could be. Um, you know, some speculations about the shift in younger people, you know, have to do with, you know, things like the kinds of activities that younger people are doing, you know, in 2008 are kind of different than the kinds of things that younger people were doing in 1970 or 1965. I'm thinking of, you know, all the, um, well, you know, the kinds of media that the young people are are taking in, ranging from video games to, to movies, just to take one example. 
a lot more violence these days, and you could see how that might have some connection to this fearlessness factor. And depression rates, again, for reasons that we're not totally clear on, um, depression rates are, are climbing in younger and younger cohorts, so that no doubt plays a, plays a role too. Which brings in a very important part of this entire discussion. If a family member or a parent, whomever, suspects that someone is looking like they're thinking of suicide, what, what should be done? Do you even remember there used to be this whole notion that don't even bring the subject up, you might put the idea into their head? Yeah, yeah, I sure do remember that, and it's, uh, it's an unfortunate unfortunate one and, and a clear mess. If anything, the opposite is true. Talking about it, asking about it saves lives. There, there's, no, there's no question about that. And so, you know, if I had a family member who I was worried about, I would talk to them, I would ask them about it. And then, if, you know, if, if people are voicing suicidal intent, if they're talking about wanting to be dead, if they're doing preparatory behaviors like giving prized possessions away, people should intervene. And a really good inter- way to intervene is certainly to access health care, primary care physicians, psychiatrists, clinical psychologists. Another way is um, helplines, crisis lines, and there's a, there's a national one. It's very, very high quality. It's 1-800-273-TALK. It's, it's a, a project funded by the federal government, uh, 1-800-273-TALK. Anywhere in the country, you call that crisis line, and Someone on the, on the other end will pick up who's a, a caring and, and well-trained crisis counselor. What's also interesting in preparation for our talk, I called the number just to make sure the numbers were correct and that they were actually up and alive, and they have a separate area now for military personnel. Absolutely, and it's the same group that's kind of administering the project, but it, it is separate for the, the military and for, the, and for veterans, and that's obviously a very timely timely thing. But in either case, the people who are picking up the phones have have been participants in this national project and and are uh, trained to be both caring and very competent. You are a psychologist, and so your approach to these things are, and and rightly so, and and I'm proud to say very successfully so, and many times with many people, with a psychological approach. When and where does someone need, let me ask the question differently, when does someone need a psychologist and when does someone need a psychiatrist? What sort of advice could we give people? I, my main advice is to combine the two. My, I, that can be very difficult in terms of things like access and expense, but the state of the art, in my opinion, and this is an opinion I think that's supported by the scientific literature, when it comes to the treatment of you know, mental, you know, clear mental disorders, the, the clear thing to do is to combine the proper medicine with the you know, proper, modern, scientifically informed psychotherapy. So, so my main advice would be to combine the two whenever possible. And you live up in the Tallahassee area. Are there a lot of mental health services up there, or is it kind of thin? I would I would say it's probably towards the, the thin side of the spectrum. I myself run a clinic for the community. It's essentially a, an outpatient psychotherapy clinic. I mean, it's for the Big Bend area, any, any, essentially anyone in North Florida, South Georgia can access it. And, and that's that's all. All we do is is modern, scientifically informed psychotherapy for major mental disorders. And we urge that our patients consult with either primary care physicians or a psychiatrist to see whether a, a psychiatric medicine would be something that would 
add to their care. And it's our view that in almost every case it would. Is there much of a difference between what is called the suicide attempter and the one who actually, other than the fact of being successfully killing themselves, but in terms of the psychology and what I'm really sort of looking at is the fact that a lot of times, especially teenagers, will act out, do something impulsively in what may be what we commonly call a suicide gesture. They really don't want to die, but they may accidentally die. And that's, that's always a, a hard line to draw. It is, it is, a, it is a tough line, and it, it's the, the way to draw it, although this doesn't make it much easier, but the way to draw it involves intent to die. It also involves medical damage. So if someone has done something self-injurious and they report that their intent was to die and it was also pretty medically damaging, you know, that's, that's a worrisome sign that, that, that they're in the category of folk who might go on to continue on that trajectory and then end up doing something that really, really is ultimately lethal. As compared to someone who who does something self-injurious and reports that it really was not about death at all, but rather about uh, regulating emotion or something like that. And moreover, it wasn't medically damaging. That, that's probably a different category of thing, you know, though also clearly of clinical concern. Is there any validity to the notion that women tend to commit suicide with less violent means? The guy will use the gun and the knife and the the woman will use pills? That is, that is the case. Certainly in the U.S., that's true. There's, of men who die by suicide in the U.S., approximately 70% die by self-inflicted gunshot wound. The, the corresponding percentage among women is more like 30% self-inflicted gunshot wound, you know, with, with the majority dying either by overdose or other means. I'm not, I think asphyxiation methods hanging in the like or second. Uh, for for women, so yeah, there is there is certainly truth to that. That you know, given that someone has died by suicide, their gender will usually usually predict what kind of method that they've used in the U.S. at least. So you make some very interesting points there, and if I could summarize it, it's the notion of feeling isolated, lonely, and worthless. And if you begin to see that in someone, it it it, st- it should start to ring bells, and there should be some intervention. Another, you know, a way to think about it is kind of a perfect storm scenario where you have, at the same time, converging in the same individual, you have the idea that they're a burden, the feeling that they're alienated, and if you combine those two things with a, a kind of demonstrative fearlessness on the part of the individual, there's a perfect storm there that I, I think does often involve serious suicidal behavior. And so, yeah, if, if clinicians or... Uh, individual people in the public notice this in, in any given person, then, then uh, intervention, I think, is, is definitely warranted. And intervention can be certainly with the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is 1-800-273-TALK, or speak to a local doctor, go to an emergency room, reach out. Suicide is something that is very often preventable and Dr. Joyner, I do thank you for joining us with this interesting talk, and I hope that you continue to do your good work. I thank, thank you, you very much. Thank you very much, sir, and have a good day. Good day to you.